0: If you're here for the first time, again, welcome, particularly if it's your very first time in our church, Uh, perhaps your first time in any church, we're excited that you're here. Um, I got a little taste of what it's like to be a guest last Sunday wherever we, whenever we go on vacation, I always plan along with the sightseeing and the, the fun, I always plan where we're going to worship, and it was neat just kind of being in the crowd and hearing someone else. And it got me thinking about what we're going to do now. What I'm going to do now, if you've never been in a church, is I'm going going to open up the Bible. I'm going to take a small section of it, and I'm going to try to explain it to you in a way that helps us all, beginning with me, understand the point of why God put that in His Word, what He wants us to do about it. Now, that task presupposes one big assignment, that I get the point. You ever gone to church and wonder what the point was in the sermon? I've been preaching sometimes, and in the middle of my preaching, because you have your own internal dialogue, say you're thinking about stuff and talking among yourselves. I'm thinking about stuff and talking to myself sometimes while I'm preaching, okay? That, That definitely works both ways. And I've occasionally asked myself, where am I going with all this? What is the point exactly? You've been here, and I thank you for your patience when we've had those kinds of Sundays. Sunday, when I was at worship with another church pretty far from here, there was no doubt about it. The pastor understood what that section of the Bible said. He explained it well. There was no doubt in any of our minds if we were paying even a little bit of attention what the point was. Today I want to open up the Gospel of John with you, if you'll look, please, to John chapter 6 and hold your place there. If you're new to the Bible, the particular story that I'm going to share with you is actually printed there on the handout, but you're very welcome to find a Bible near you, we have some under the seats, and find the Gospel of John. Gospel literally means good news. The gospel of John, then, is John's retelling of the good news of Jesus. John wasn't an academic. He wasn't talking about something that he had only studied from a distance. He was a personal friend of Jesus. He was one of his first followers. He was one of his disciples. In fact, of the original 12 closest men who followed Jesus, John was the closest of all. He begins his gospel with these amazing words that take us out of the created order and speak to us about who God is. And it says about Jesus, John tells us, in the beginning was the Word, referring to Jesus by that exalted title. And then he says, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He keeps writing this introduction, this prologue to his gospel. And he says in verse 14 of the first chapter, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And there, John is telling you what we celebrate at Christmas time that though Jesus always existed with God the Father and is God himself, there was a specific moment in history when he dwelt among us. Literally in Greek, he tabernacled, he set up his tent among us. He lived among us. And everything John writes, and you need to remember that as we get into this story in John chapter 6 in a minute, everything is from an eyewitness perspective. John, unlike the other gospel writers, sometimes gives us very private glimpses of Jesus takes us actually into the heart and mind of Jesus and tells us with the inspiration of God what Jesus was actually thinking and feeling, why He was doing things. It's an amazing retelling of the life of Jesus Christ. But John would have been a good preacher, and he was certainly a great writer because there is not one word missing, there is not one word out of place. John knows exactly what his point is. When he comes to the end of the Gospel of John, he's actually going to pause and tell the reader, this is exactly why I'm telling you this. He doesn't want you to miss the point. So, if you hold John 6, I want to tell you what the point of the Gospel is and why I'm going to close my brief time of teaching it to you the way I will. John 20, verse 30. John says… Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, in other words, here's the point, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. All right, let's study the Bible together. What's the point of the Gospel of John? he want John says Jesus did many other signs miracles he showed who he was but i didn't write them all down but what i did write down these are written for a specific purpose you were on to it and i interrupted you what is it that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and there he uses a title again he's the one that god chose he's the one that god anointed He's the one that God has sent among us. He is the Son of God. He takes the end of the gospel back to where He started, and He says, here's the effect. Here's what will happen to you, and here's what will happen for you if you believe Him. You will have what? Life Life in His name. He's the only one who can give you eternal life. So, that's the gospel of John. An eyewitness account where John very specifically will walk his readers through seven signs and from an eyewitness historical point of view, tell you, this is what I saw, this is what I heard, this was my experience, and the point of it all was that we would believe who Jesus was because He can give us life. So, at the end of this message, and believe it or not, I won't be much longer, I sense your skepticism, but it's true. I'm going to ask you specifically to trust Jesus. For some of you, that will be a first-time experience, and you'll take a step, I pray, from, life, from death into life. You'll understand that what this gospel says is true, that Jesus, the Son of God, came and lived among us, lived a sinless life with all the temptations that we face, And then, for love of us, went to the cross and died there to pay for sins that we had committed. That's the good news. If you've never been in church before, let me sum it up for you like that. Everybody thinks that church is a place where you go to get good advice, and it's not. There is good advice to be had in church, but the purpose of the church of Jesus is not to give good advice. It's to announce good news. I would much rather have good news than good advice, wouldn't you? Good advice still depends on me. The Bible will announce to you good news that your sins were paid for at the cross and that Jesus died so that you wouldn't have to. And then just as He promised, and those promises run the length of the Gospel of John, He died for our sins and then took his life back with authority just as he promised to do because he was God himself and having life, he can give life. Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. So at the end of this service, some of you will stand at a crossroads with Jesus wondering whether you should trust him with your life. Ask him to forgive your sins. I pray that you will. For many others of you who are here week after week and you placed your trust in Jesus to save you as I did many years ago, I'm going to show you something that Jesus very deliberately took the disciples through. And what He wanted in all of that was what He always wants. He wants you to understand who He is and trust Him. And that's the story we find in the very short little passage of John chapter 6. Will you look back with me there, please? If you'll look at the Gospel of John, chapter 6, you'll see it's long. Flip a page or two and notice how long that chapter is. Do you see it? John chapter 6, and how many verses? 71. Now, understand if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, John wasn't writing chapters and verses He was just writing by hand what he found about Jesus, and later, many, many years later, chapters and verses were added to make it easy for people to study what the Bible says like we're doing, so that I say chapter and verse and you know where to find it. But it's fitting that this section of the Gospel of John was divided into such a long chapter because it tells the story of a very long day. The first part of John chapter 6 tells the story of my favorite miracle of Jesus. I know it's important because all four gospel writers record it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some of them eyewitnesses. Some of them friends of eyewitnesses who are writing down what they heard from them or writing down what Jesus did on this very long day. Here's the story. John chapter 6 verse 1 says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following Him because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there He sat down with His disciples. Look in verse 5 lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? John is not interested in everything that led up to this story, but Mark tells us, Mark who was a friend of the Apostle Peter tells us the disciples were in a season of ministry that was so incredibly busy they didn't have time to eat. The crowds were so big and so constant and so insistent that they were literally missing meals trying to take care of everyone who came close to see Jesus. You ever work so hard that you couldn't eat? Not very often, right? And it's easy to eat in America. In three minutes, you can have a hot meal in the comfort of your own car. (laughs) Think about that. You don't even have to get out of the car. And you'll choose a different drive through restaurant because that one right there that you wanted to go to has three cars waiting already. And the poor guy running the window literally has a clock in front of him telling him, hurry, 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 but we can't wait on three cars. So we seldom miss meals, right? Food wasn't quite so easy in the ancient world. The crowds are coming to Jesus, they're bringing their sick, they're clamoring for help. There are thousands of people following Jesus everywhere they can find Him. And the Gospel of Mark says that Jesus saw the disciples and tried to take them away for a day of rest, but they would not have it. Because many came to Jesus, and John says, Jesus asked a question that He already knew the answer to. Jesus has never asked a question that he didn't know the answer to. He says, How in the world will we feed all these people? Did you read the very next verse, the verse I didn't read? Look at Jesus at work on his followers. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Keep that in mind. Jesus always knows what he's going to do. You might not. You ever wondered what Jesus is up to in your life? Have you? I have. Often. I'm following him. I'm hearing from him. I know because he put it in writing. I have this historically accurate, verified book that tells me reliably about life and God who made me and Jesus, his son, who came to die for my sins and gives me wisdom and strength. And even in reading all that, I can't always understand what he's doing. But he always knows There's never a moment in Jesus' eternal existence where he has thought to himself, what should I do now? He always knows. Well, the rest of the story, the story I'm not going to tell you, says how the disciples gathered up a kid's sack lunch, and to their amazement, and they didn't want to be there in the first place, watched Jesus' look up to heaven and pray over this little meal and start distributing it to His disciples. And that day the Gospels say 5,000 men were fed. What that means is probably 15, maybe 20,000 people in total, counting the women and the children, were fed in a single afternoon. One of the fascinating interior sights of Jesus that John tells us is early in his gospel that Jesus did not entrust himself to people because he he knew what was in their hearts. And after this amazing miracle, the selfish heart of humanity comes up, and I want you to see what happens next. Look at verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. It's pretty good, right? But look what Jesus knows about them. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again in the mountain by himself. You would think their reaction is a good one. They know that God is at work. Someone, a prophet, someone who speaks for God is among them. But Jesus knows more than their words. He knows the interior of their heart. And they've admired the miracle. And now, apparently, their thought process is this. Anybody who can feed this huge crowd with just a small lunch surely could destroy Rome for us. Let's make Him our King. Sometimes in election season, parties talk about drafting someone as their nominee. This is a first century political draft. They want Jesus to be King. They're going to force Him to be King. They think they're going to have the authority and the wherewithal somehow to force Him to lead a political revolt and make Their political dreams come true of being rid of these nasty Roman soldiers, this pagan, godless Roman empire, setting up heaven on earth according to their own understanding. Jesus wants nothing to do with it. He sees what is in their heart, and He must have used His divine faculties as He had before to escape. He gets away from the crowd. He withdraws into the mountain. Another gospel says that He went there to pray, and He sent the disciples away. That's where the story starts that I'm interested in this morning. Verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. John's such a good writer. See, the key to great writing is to not have too many words. When I've had those what-was-the-point sermons, it's always because I use too many words. John makes every word count. If you can stand there on a shore for a second, you can understand the disciples' dilemma. We don't feel the awkwardness and the tension of that little verse that the disciples are in the boat and it's getting dark now and Jesus has not yet come to them because we're not disciples in the sense that they were. In the ancient world, they had staked their life. Many of them had left jobs. Many of them had alienated families, I'm sure, to follow Jesus. It wasn't really to the disciples' prerogative to just take off in the boat that had got them there to the other shore without Jesus. The gospel writers tell us that Jesus sent the disciples away, In other words, they're doing exactly what he says, but it doesn't make much sense. They came there together. They were subjected to this incredibly long day where he deliberately tests them to see if they can understand who he is and what he can do. He has them fan out in the crowd to collect this little lunch. He has them distribute all the food that that everyone would need it. They all had their fill, and the gospels say they had 12 baskets left over, one for every disciple. They've had the biggest display of the power of God that they had ever seen from Jesus, and now that's finally over. They've lost sight of him because he went away. He's not having any part of this political draft. He goes into the mountain. They are left alone. They're in the boat. It's getting dark, and John says Jesus had not yet come to them. Well, John was in that boat. You understand why they would have been uncomfortable? Let's step out of the dirt of the first century and step into the pavement of the 21st. You ever been in a situation where you're doing exactly what Jesus told you to do, and you don't understand where He is? In all you're doing, in all your obedience, in all you're trying to follow Him, you've lost sight of Him. You can't tell where He is. You can't hear His voice anymore. That's what's beginning to happen to the disciples. Their day off has been ruined. They are completely exhausted. Now they've got about a four-mile row all the way to the other side without Jesus because He told them that that's the way it had to be. See, one of the misunderstandings about the Bible, let me be very practical in 21st century with you, is that if you'll always do what Jesus says, you won't have any trouble in this life can I tell you that it's just the opposite? If you take Jesus seriously, take Him at His Word and do what He says sometimes, it will land you in more trouble than you could ever imagine. And that's what the disciples are just about to find out. Look at verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And for first-century readers, that would have been immediately apparent. The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. And that humid, wet air mixes in with cold air that blows in east to west. And great storms be calm on the shore and a raging, deadly storm out in the middle of it. Now, this boat is filled with a pretty motley crew. There's a tax collector on board. There's a freedom fighter on board that once hated the tax collector. There are, thankfully, some commercial fishermen who are very familiar with this. And when the wind picks up, Peter must have looked at John and said, Oh, man, here we go. Why are we here? Why couldn't we have left a few hours early? Why didn't, didn't we get our day off? We would have been home by now. But the storm is starting. They're doing exactly what Jesus said, and they're getting into trouble about it. Verse 19 tells me how much trouble. Verse 19 says, when they had rode about three or four miles. Now, see, I can tell that you're, some of you are very familiar Bible readers because you read that, and it didn't impress you. You didn't go, whoa. You ever row three miles? What chance would most of us have if I put you on calm water and handed you an oar and say, I'm going to drive three miles up the shore. I'll see you there whenever you arrive. Would you take that on? Rowing is a nasty, terrible business. Back when I cared to work out, I would row sometimes because a friend who was a sadist would make me. (laughs) And it was horrible. I would tell him, my grandma went to be with the Lord years ago, and I would say, Dean, I can see my grandmother. I need to slow down, right? I think grandma is beckoning. The end is nigh. And that was on carpet, on a machine, with a fan blowing on me, and occasionally he would even bring me water. Look, here's how nasty rowing is. I don't know if it's still true, but years ago, the man in charge of physical fitness for the Navy Seals was a women's rowing coach from the University of Michigan. That's how tough rowing is. These men are rowing in a commercial fishing boat that is not really built to accommodate as many people as they have packed into it. They've got about a four mile crossing but it's against the wind. And it's a nasty business. They can't raise the sail, it'll be torn off. Half the men in the boat can't help. They're actually just ballast. They're actually just in the way. We're not told all that goes on there, but it's in the middle of the night. It might have been two or three in the morning, according to the retelling of the Gospels. They are in deep trouble, and they have rowed three or four miles. Did you notice the language is kind of inaccurate? Why is that? Because they're rowing in a storm, so they're here, and thankfully, we're just about there. Oh, wait a second. We got caught by another gust. We just lost 300 yards. Can you take a turn at the oar? No, I'm exhausted. You're the fisherman. You get us there. Now, understand why they're in this mess. Why are they in this trouble? You see the point? What are they doing? They're doing exactly what Jesus said, and they're in a world of hurt. I've been following Jesus since I was a kid. I've been a pastor now for over 20 years, I guess. I've seen countless people stop following Jesus because in following Him, it gets difficult. Let me be very practical with you. If you make your relationship with Jesus dependent upon your circumstances, you won't follow Him very long. Because He said in the Gospel of John, in the world you will have tribulation follow me straight into trouble. He went on to say, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. But don't go for a minute of this false teaching that if you follow Jesus, everything is going to work out. You're going to understand where He is, what He's doing, what He wants, and He's going to make it easy on you at every step of the way. He won't. He's teaching you things And there are things that you learn in a storm that you will not learn any other way. So, the disciples are bone tired. They're frustrated to start with. Now, they're exhausted. Now, it's the middle of the night. I mean, friendships are fraying inside this little boat. They don't know if they're ever going to get home. And then, of course, it gets even worse. When they had rowed about three or four miles, you following with me? They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were what? Frightened. (laughs) Can you understand their point of view? See, I know we're in church and you're not reading this necessarily as an eyewitness document of a miracle, because I read the most extraordinary thing practically anybody could read, and nobody went, wow. They were in the middle of the night, caught in a storm that threatened to swamp the boat and drown them. And in the middle of all that exhaustion, what happened? Jesus came walking on the water. And John, with understatement, says, and they were what? Well, I guess so. if you went down to the pier and you saw a guy walking in, would you be, af- would you be afraid? Be an absolutely terrifying sight. Where has Jesus been? They don't know. The gospel writer says he was praying, but the disciples haven't sighted him in hours. They've been caught in a storm doing exactly what he said, and here's their experience. We're doing everything all day that Jesus wants. He puts us in impossible situations, and now at the end of the day when we're about to drown, we don't even know where he is. If you follow Jesus for life, you'll find yourself in that situation. And what's going to happen is, at that moment, you'll be faced with a terrible temptation to think that you have misunderstood Him, or that He is not good and faithful, that He has abandoned you, and He hasn't. He knows exactly what He's doing. What's happening here? Why is this incredible miracle reported in such a matter-of-fact way by an eyewitness of it? The king who made everything, the creator that set this universe in motion, that made this beautiful, fine-tuned universe that sustains human life and makes it not only possible but good and enjoyable, that made food taste good, that made friendship sweet, that made family such a treasure when it's working well under God's direction. All of those things are under His control, and the creator of the universe momentarily suspended one of its features. He suspended gravity. You know, that's the prerogative of creators and designers. They can turn features off. If you're a software designer, you can load it up with features, and if some don't please you, you can turn them off and make them work differently. That's all that's happening here. But the disciples have never seen anything like this. They understood somehow that He had the faculty over food to feed hungry people, but they weren't expecting this. They're afraid. One of the Gospels says that they screamed in fear, but He said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. There's a subtle little arrow back to God, I believe, in the Greek text of this gospel. It's not what Jesus said, but it's definitely what John wrote. He wrote simply these words I am. This is God walking toward them. And here's what you need to know about the trouble that Jesus sent you into. It looks terrifying to you. It makes you exhausted. It makes you question where he is. It makes you question whether he's coming or not. But another of the gospel writers describes Jesus' approach in this way. It says he was walking on the water and he would have passed by them. Just as casually as I'm walking across the front of this platform, Jesus walked across a storm. No No wonder they screamed in fear. I mean, if you've ever rowed, and if you've ever rowed in trouble, and I have, I went on a whitewater rafting trip, and there was a moment where I thought we wouldn't all return. I thought we might have a little riverbank service for one of the guys. If you get distracted, it's hard to keep rowing. They're in deep trouble, and then they hear this very familiar voice cutting through the storm, cutting across the waves. It is I, we would say, it's me. John wrote down in Greek, I am. Don't be afraid. Where was Jesus? Jesus was exactly where He wanted to be. Did He ever lose sight of the disciples? Not for a moment. He knew what was in the heart of the crowd. He knew what was in the heart of the disciples. Look at their response now. I love the understatement of John's writing. Then they were glad to take Him into the boat. Well, yeah, I guess so. If nothing else, this relieves this terrifying picture of a man standing on water. Please get in. You're freaking us out. We've never seen anything like this. And then I believe John suddenly records another miracle. They were glad to take Him in the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. As soon as Jesus got in the boat, they ran aground. We made it. We were just over. What made the difference? Jesus. Here's the thing, church. What we need as a church, what we need as individuals, what you need as a family that is trying to follow Jesus, is not more cleverness, it's not a better plan, it's not more effort. What is needed is for people to be His disciples. See, when these men became Jesus' disciples, they renounced everything that came in the way of following Him and doing what He said. That's how they wound up in this mess. They did exactly what Jesus said, and it landed them into the biggest trouble of their lives. And that wouldn't stop, by the way. That's one story in one of the Gospels that if you continue to read all the Gospels and you read church history, what you're going to find out is that these men followed Jesus into the worst kind of trouble. Almost all of them followed followed Him all the way to their own death. So there's a false concept of Jesus that if you just say a prayer do a couple different Christian kinds of things, all trouble, all pain, all suffering, all uncertainty is going to be removed, and it's not true. Here's what is true. Jesus always knows what He's doing. He knows exactly what He wants to elicit in the heart of His disciples, and that is trust. He wants the disciples to believe Him. And here's the point of the story. Jesus is always going to be wherever He sends you. If Jesus has sent you, the circumstances do not matter. He is present. How do I know He's there? He's everywhere. And the astonishing thing about this story is that everything in this story is immediately under the Lord's command and opposes no resistance to Him except the people. The crowd has their own agenda and His disciples have their own misgivings, their own arguments, their own fears. What would make the eternal difference, what would make your life matter forever, what would make this community change, beginning with your life and spreading out through your family, is a simple insistence on understanding what Jesus said and doing it, knowing that going straight into trouble is no sign of His defeat or our mistake. On the contrary, Jesus is going to send us places where we will experience trouble and trial and fear. Here's the good news. He will always be there. He provides for the crowd and He is present with the disciples in their storm. When did the disciples arrive at the destination they intended? The exact moment Jesus wanted them to. So it is with you. Jesus has spoken clearly. His word, this big Bible that tells us all about Him, that points straight to Him, has told us exactly how He wants us to live. He's talked to us about our family and our friendships. He's talked to us about marriage and sex. He's talked to us about money. He's talked to us a great deal about the kinds of people we are to be Why don't disciples experience the power of Jesus? Because they look at the circumstances around Him, lose sight of Him, and stop obeying Him. Not knowing that wherever Jesus sends you, He will be there with you. Let's pray together. Let me be really, really specific and clear. First, with one group of people in this this congregation my specific invitation to you. And it'll take a miracle, and I understand that. That's how Jesus explains it Himself, is that you will trust Jesus as your Savior today. The same Jesus that was the master of the storm and the wind and the bread and the fish, He's the same one that went to the cross to die for your sins. He's the only one who can save you. The reason John tells us these signs, tells us these extraordinary stories that make no sense in the world as we normally experience it, that's exactly the point. He wants you to understand from his eyewitness point of view, there's no one like Jesus. There's no one in the world like Him because He's not of this earth. He's the Creator. He's the King. And the miracle of the good news, I'm telling you, Not good advice I'm giving you. The good news I'm telling you is he died for sin to save people who had turned their backs on him. And we've done our best, and we've pursued religion, and we've pursued success, and none of it matters, and none of it helps unless you come to him, the only one who can do these things. That's my invitation to you. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you're not entirely sure that he has forgiven your sins, run to him. He's a real person. He's listening. You don't need ritual or a magic prayer or to say things a certain way. You need to trust Him to say, yes, Lord, I get it. I don't know much about you, but I believe you died for my sins, and I believe you can forgive me and give me eternal life. Please do so. Please save me. And He will. That's why the Bible, from cover to cover, calls Him Savior. He'll rescue you. He'll save you. He'll give you eternal life. That, remember, is the point. And a much larger group in this congregation will be those who already know Him. You've already trusted Him with your eternal life. But you're in the storm right now, and you can't see Him. You can't hear Him. You've lost sight of Him. He's the same in the calm and in the storm. He's never worried He always knows what he's going to do. The issue is not whether he can bring you safely through the storm. The issue is not whether he is present. The question is, will you trust him in it? So if I could be really practical with you, can you identify, can you name the storm you're in and tell Jesus, even though I don't see you, I don't see your power manifested yet, I'm in this storm, I know you're here, though I can't see you, and I trust you, I believe you. Lord, now move in hearts. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that those who don't know you as Savior would turn to you right now and ask you to forgive their sin and save them. For the many Christians who are here who already know you and are confident, Lord, that they will be in heaven someday with you, help us not to be those half-hearted disciples who turn back and despair of you and your plan when it gets a little stormy. Help us to listen for your voice and know that you are always with us. Wherever you send us, you'll be there. I pray this in Jesus' name.